Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, one of the gospel accounts of that first Palm Sunday, as we remember today. On this side of the cross, uh, we know what happens after Palm Sunday, as Pastor Dave mentioned in the kids' message, and which I'm sure most of you know. As Jesus goes into Jerusalem with all of this praise and all these shouts and all this joy, we know what's coming. At that moment too, though, Jesus did as well. And as we look at this passage, reflect on the fact that Jesus is entering in with all of this praise, with all of this rejoicing, with all of this acclaim and shouts and all of that. He knows that rejection, suffering, and death are ahead. And how does that happen? How do things turn? How, how does the joy become anger? Well, as we look at this passage, I'd encourage you to consider that it happens back then the same way it happens in our lives today. And let's look at that together and what that means for us. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 of God's holy word. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. This is God's Word. Father, would you bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and applying. Would you bless your Word to us. May it be more than words on the screen, ink on paper, pixels on our devices. May you make it what it is. Life-transforming, life-giving, powerful truth that will change us. We pray, trusting You'll do that. Because we believe Your Spirit, Holy Spirit, You are at work. And we come in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was wrestling this week with uh, a couple of things. One of them was my health insurance company. Uh, on the phone anyway, wrestling with them. I, I was following up on a bill that we received, and you know, I, I thought it was something that was covered. It was a routine 
test and diagnostic or whatever you call it. Uh, nothing earth-shaking or traumatic or anything like that. And as I spoke with the agent on the phone, the customer service representative, she said to me, is Mrs. Quillen there? And I said, you know, my last name is Quillen. So this is my wife. She's asking for my wife, right? Uh, and I said, yeah, but she's busy. And I knew what they wanted. They, they, she said, I, I need to get her permission to talk about her medical information with you. And I'm like, okay, I... I, I pay the bill, I, I, you know, you've already verified I am who I say I am, I have the explanation of benefits right in front of me, it talks about her stuff, and you know, I, why can't you just talk to me? Well, we need, your, we need your permission, and it's like a privacy thing, and all that kind of stuff, right? And I, 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 This has happened multiple times, I get frustrated every time. <laughs> and part of it is because I'm just too obstinate to print out the form that they send, that then you have to snail mail in that, that my wife says, I can talk to them about her medical stuff. Uh, it, it almost feels like there's just this hyper-individuality, right, where every single human being has to be able to make all the decisions themselves. And it doesn't matter that we're husband and wife. Or it doesn't matter that our children are under parental authority or anything. We, can just, we all have this right to make our own decisions, right? So I'm all for privacy. Don't hear me saying, you know, we shouldn't have privacy and things like that. Or it could just be that I really don't like to say no. <laughs> I don't like to hear no, right? could just be that I am a little obstinate and I want things to be my way and my timing. In fact, that, that was pressed home to me yesterday as we were driving somewhere together in our car. And as I often do, sometimes in a calm voice and sometimes in a not so calm voice, I will talk to other cars on the road. <laughs> And so this one car was a little too far over in my lane, and I couldn't quite get by, and I'm just like, you need to move a little bit, and they started to move, and I was like, oh, see, you know, you, that, that's what you need to do. You need to know, you need to get out of my way, and, uh, and someone in my car, who will remain nameless, finished that sentence as, he said to everyone else on the road, <laughs> you need to get out of my way, he said to everyone else on the road, and I said... <laughs> I said, I feel heard. <laughs> I feel seen. You know me. And they said, I'm not so sure that's something you should be proud about. <laughs> and so I, it's the truth. Like, I, that, I, I, you know, it's not good. It's not something to be proud of. But it is the reality that, like, that's, that's what's going on underneath us. I'm saying, you just all, you need to get out of my way. I'm trying to go where I'm trying to go. I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. Whether you're a customer service representative or you're a car on the road or whatever, right? That's, that is somewhat of an individuality thing that plagues many of us, right? And then Jesus comes along and he shows you really that the best way isn't your way, it's his way. And you think about that in this passage, what you know is coming, right? Here's Jesus entering in. Everybody's praising Him, shouts, and everything else. And in Jerusalem, as He gets there, rather than fighting, He suffers. Rather than arguing, He asks questions. Rather than a throne, He gets a cross. Rather than gold, He gets thorns for His crown. Rather than kicking out the Romans, 
He clears the corrupt worship practices out of the temple. Jesus brings together the throne and the temple. He brings those together. Mark alone of the Gospels kind of points out that Jesus heads right for the temple right away. Everyone else mentions that Jesus comes and then he goes to the temple and spends most of the rest of his time in Jerusalem in the temple area, in the temple courts, talking, questioning, discussing things with his disciples, with anyone who comes to him to challenge him. And what's going on here as Jesus, what I see happening is Jesus goes to the temple and he's acclaimed as a king. They're rejoicing, Hosanna, save us, you know, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, all of those things, right? But what Jesus does is head to the temple because he wants more than to change your circumstances and to kick out the Romans or to bring about whatever it is you want to happen, whether it's somebody getting out of your way in their car or whatever, changing the policies of a health insurance company, right? What Jesus wants is not so much to transform your external circumstances. He wants your heart. And He wants to clean up what is corrupt within it. He wants your worship. He wants to bring you together with the Father and clear out all the junk that's in there, right? He wants you to trust Him above all else. He brings together His power as King. Brings together that throne and the temple. That you would trust Him with your future, with your work, with the church, with your family, with your country, with your reputation, with your legacy, with your health, with your finances, with your children. And that's hard. That is hard to do. And it's good. You know that. You struggle to find a job that allows you to provide for your family and not be alienated and a stranger to them. You know that as you try to love your spouse and serve them well. As you try to raise your kids and you balance you know, discipline with encouragement as you face health issues and you walk with others through them, that there, there is a qualitative difference. There, there is a level of quality to your life that is so much higher than others as you put God first as you prioritize that trust in Jesus, whether your circumstances change or not, right? As your heart is more devoted to Him, you actually can find this peace in the midst of those circumstances. And that is what King Jesus does. Most of what He does is more about changing you than changing your circumstances. And that's what I want to unpack as we dig into this passage here. We, in fact, we won't understand this passage and what's going on and what happens after if we don't understand that King Jesus wants to change our hearts more than our circumstances. And we see that first of all, with just his, the destination for him is Jerusalem. You see that in verse 1, as they are, let me get my glasses out here. Verse 1, 
as they approach Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem's been the capital of the nation of Israel at this point for hundreds of years. There was the captivity and everything, and they came back. But that, Jerusalem is the place that David ruled from, the place where the temple was erected, the place where David and his descendants ruled, but now at this point, the place that is oppressed by a foreign power. The Romans are there. The people of Israel have some authority. They have a council. They have the chief priests and the scribes um, and the elders who can rule and make some decisions, but they don't have the power to put someone to death. They need permission from Rome for that. They have in that power that they exercise from Jerusalem, that council, those leaders, they apparently have the power to send people out to investigate uh, religious activity throughout the land. They sent some folks to check out John the Baptist. Uh, at some point in Mark chapter 3 speaks about that. They sent someone out to investigate Jesus. Mark chapter 7 talks about that. But the thing about Jerusalem and what is, seems to be most important to Jesus and what he seems intent on and focused on is the fact that, that is where the temple is located. And that's where he spends most of his time. As we read in the rest of Mark, Jesus spends all of his time there when he heads back at night. He stays in Bethany. But during the day, he is all about the temple, the temple courts. And he goes there here, Mark tells us, in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. Looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. But Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem for some time. Uh, Luke in his Gospel has a major section from Luke 9 until Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in Luke 19. Maybe about a third of Luke's Gospel, which is pretty big uh, in itself, a third of Luke's Gospel is about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And that's where a lot of the parables happen, the, that journey on the way. Here in Mark, it's much more like Mark is with, with most things. much more compressed, condensed. Uh, Jesus seems to have been heading out to Jerusalem back in Mark chapter 10. It says He was on the way. Uh, and then he's interrupted by the rich young ruler and speaks to that. And then right after that, his journey resumes and we learn that he is specifically headed to Jerusalem. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. No matter where you were in Israel, you went up to Jerusalem. It was up in the hills. Uh, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Mark 10, 32. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Jesus teaching on the rich young ruler and a couple other things just echoing in their minds. They're amazed. And he began, or, and again, Mark 10, at the end of verse 32 says, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Mark 10, 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem and he knows what's coming. The disciples don't get that. In fact, right after that, 
is the passage where James and John, the, the, the sons of thunder, uh, the sons of bow energies, the, the, they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Give us a blank check, Jesus. When, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right hand, one of us sit on your left? Jesus has just said, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, I'm going to die. And the disciples are thinking about, hey, you know, just a sec. You know, could one of us, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Like, we're willing. I could be on the right, John could be on the left, or, you know, he could, you know, he could be on the right, I could be on the left. Just could we sit one on the right and left? You know, the seats of power. They're saying, can we have the elevated place in the kingdom? As Jesus is talking about going to die in Jerusalem. That gives Jesus the opportunity to mention that leadership in the kingdom is very different than leadership in the world. And he says those memorable words in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We'll see that ransom happens later in the week on Good Friday. Well, right now, Jesus is still in command. And he tells his disciples, as they're heading up to Jerusalem, he does give a command, go, untie, bring, say, Mark 11, 2 and 3. Now, a couple of things going on there, just to just observe briefly. Right? To say that leadership in the kingdom is about serving is not to say there's no commanding, to not say there's instructions, is not to say there isn't authority anymore. That's a, that's a problem for our culture, right? Uh, we have a habit and, and, and an aversion to joining things and being under authority. Jesus says the problem is not authority, the problem is that we want to lord it over people. The problem is that we want to have a position and a title and not do the work, which is to use authority for the good of others. That the point of the kingdom is that you use what you have for the good of others. Jesus was the best example. He lived this out. He, he has the authority to, to command demons to come out, to still the wind and the waves. He has the authority and ability to raise the dead. And the devil came at the beginning and tried to tempt him to use that authority and that power for his own good. And he said, no, I'm going to use it basically the way God wants me to use it for the good of others. That's, that's what we see going on here. That the authority of Jesus to command to be his own kind of king is what's in view. And he is king. The whole trip to Jerusalem is about his suffering and his destination is Jerusalem. But it's also a part of his own choice as king. He's coming. And he has the right to command and direct destination is Jerusalem. His destination is also, and this is our second point, his destination is discipleship. He's trying to make discipleship happen. Look at verses 1 through 3. As they approach Jerusalem, they're arriving near two towns, Bethphage, which is the house of figs, a place where they grow whatever turns into figs. I can't remember. Uh, figs are dried fruit. What are they? Plums? I can never remember this. 
What is it? They're figs. Figs are figs? What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of dates. Sorry, yeah. Never mind. Go look at a Bible dictionary. Check what I'm saying. Uh, Beth Beggy, House of Figs. Um, we, we don't know much other than the name of this place. We're not sure exactly where it was. We know it's very near Bethany. It's linked together with it here in the text. Uh, both appear to be on the road from Jericho, which was down in the valley, as the Jericho road winds up to Jerusalem. Uh, they're both there. Bethany, we know the location of. They're on Mount of Olives on the far side from Jerusalem, near the top. These places, these towns. Uh, Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's where Jesus is going to stay. Uh, it seems like they, they camp out as well at some point in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, especially on the night when he was betrayed. A lot of people most likely staying out there in those gardens uh, as the town is filled with people celebrating the Passover. You stay in the surrounding area. And so here, though both these cities, Bethphage and Bethany, on the Mount of Olives, uh, that was part of a ridge high elevation there, relatively speaking, east of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Jericho, down in the valley, and separated from Jerusalem by a, by a valley on the west side called the Kidron Valley. And the height of the Mount of Olives is, is not, it's not that high, but it's 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. So as you're on the Mount of Olives, you can look down into the city of Jerusalem, and you can especially see the temple area and later on, they'll have some conversations there sitting on the Mount of Olives talking about the temple with the disciples. Jesus will speak of it as they're looking on it from above, so to speak. They see it. And so as they're in that place, right, Jesus, as they're approaching Bethany and Bethphage on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus sends two disciples on ahead. And he says these interesting instructions, right? Go into the village, opposite you, before you, ahead of you, you might translate that. Immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Verse 3. You say the Lord has need of it, and immediately he'll send it back here. You know, one of the questions is, well, is this supernatural knowledge of Jesus, or did he know this person who owned the colt? And, uh, you know, it's not super clear, you know, I'm not going to die on this hill, but it sure seems like this is something supernatural going on. That Jesus is saying, you're going to find this colt in this town ahead, and you're going to untie it and bring it here. He makes a similar prediction in, in Mark 14, 13, when he talks about finding a room for them to celebrate a Passover. He's going to meet a guy who's carrying some water. Right? That sure seems to be supernatural knowledge of what's coming in the future. Um, Jesus clearly had that kind of understanding. In fact, as we just read back in Mark 10, 33 and 34, he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's not just guessing. He knows he's going to suffer. He's, he's, he's going to be rejected. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be killed. And he's going to rise again. You know, Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is not just a great example. 
He's the very Son of God come and united Himself to humanity while still remaining divine. There's a mystery in that. That He has those two natures within Him. The human and the divine. And and that's who He is. As King. He can speak to us. He can be with us. And so, verse 4, at Jesus' command, these guys go, the two disciples go, and they find that Jesus was, of course, right, and they find things just as He said. They respond to the folks there saying, what are you doing? Just as Jesus had commanded them, and the objections are silenced. They say, you know, the Lord has need of it. And those who are there go, oh, okay. Take it. It's fine. End of argument. But notice it's not just the two disciples who go that obey Jesus. The, the, the folks who hear that from those disciples obey Jesus. That's enough for them to know that the Lord has need of it. And this is probably, they understand who Jesus is. That there is some familiarity. There are followers of Jesus all around. That He is known. And you can imagine especially in that area where He has known Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He would be the talk of the town. Jesus in this time has many followers willing to do His will. And that, that is the mark of a disciple, right? What Jesus is trying to bring about in His time with the disciples and in His ministry and destination to Jerusalem is to bring about the destination of discipleship for each of us. That we would be followers of Jesus who listened to His instructions. In fact, was that not His command, right? Going, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And I am with you always. That Jesus' point in coming is to die, and His reason for dying is that He would make disciples, followers. Those who would follow Him, obey Him, that He would be their King. That's our calling. To obey His Word. To do what He says to do. To believe that that is what's best. It's not just a good idea. It's what's best. And it's not just something to stick in our heads. It's what we need to do. Not just hear, right? As we saw in James a few weeks ago. There was a, there was a, a, a pastor a few years ago who was talking about this idea. And uh, he, he said, you know, he gave his kids an instruction to go clean up their rooms, right? You know, Sally, Joey, go, go clean up your rooms. You know, I want to see them clean, put your clothes away, all that kind of stuff. So a little while later, he goes by the, the, the room and, and nothing has happened. The kids are just sitting there in the bedroom. And he's like, what are you doing? Didn't, I told you to clean up your rooms. What, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, Dad, Dad, we thought you'd be so happy. Um, we thought your words were really important. We thought your instruction was really, really super important. So we've been sitting here memorizing it. In fact, Jimmy translated into Hebrew. And, and we're just like, it's so important. We're going to teach it to our kids. What about cleaning up? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Right? Don't hear me saying it's not important to memorize the Word of God. Do hear me saying we're meant to obey it. We're meant to wrestle with it. And if you are reading the Bible and you're not finding a way to apply it to your life, 
then you're not getting the value out of it. You're not pursuing discipleship. Because the Word of God is meant to be applied. Practically. I mean, that's what these folks do. Jesus says, go, you'll find this. What were the commands again? He says, go, untie, bring, say. And you'd be like, I don't know about you, but I'm like, oh yeah, Jesus, you told the guy step by step. You know, you said, go here, say that, do this, right? I mean, if you told me to get up in the morning and, you know, go and, and do this and that and this and then turn left and say this to them, sure, I'd do that, right? Would I? It still requires this faith commitment. I mean, Jesus gave them instructions that were pretty specific for this circumstance because he's trying to do something particular in that season. But man, he gives some pretty clear instructions. And I, I, I memorize them, but sometimes I forget. You know, if your brother sins against you, go. Oh, what? Go. <laughs> if you're there at worship and you remember <clears throat> your brother has something against you, drop what you're doing and go. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says, right? That's pretty clear. There's all kinds of things like that. Jesus says, go. It requires this faith. It requires a commitment to Him. It requires to say, you know what? What Jesus says has got, has got to matter more than what I say. What Jesus wants has got to matter more than what I want. What Jesus is calling me to do has got to matter more than what I'm thinking I ought to do. And the sad reality is that's very often not the case with us, right? And also, I mean, even when we do understand and we try, we, we very often fail. Right? You can memorize the Scripture and then you can want to apply it and then in the moment, what happens? You know, things go off the rails somehow. The words come out of your mouth that you didn't want to come out of your mouth. And the beautiful thing is, brothers and sisters, this destination is Jerusalem, this destination is discipleship, and in all that, his destination is death. Which is for us, actually good. Look at verses 7-10 through 10 again. Jesus is the king. And to make that really clear, he orchestrates this scene. Right? He goes, tells those guys to get a colt no one has sat on. And to bring it here. And he's going to ride it into town. Verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. So the coats there are just like a saddle. You know, make it a little more comfortable for Jesus. They put their colts on, or their, their coats, coats, that's hard to say, coat and colt. They put their coats on the colt and Jesus sat on the colts. And we read elsewhere it's the, the foal of a donkey. It's a baby donkey. We read elsewhere that its mother came along with it too. Mark doesn't mention that. But then what happens is, the people see what Jesus is doing. This is part of their uh, DNA as a people. This is part of what they understand Jerusalem to be. This is part of what they understand their own history to be, that, that there were promises that God made that there would one day come a descendant of David who would ride on a colt, humble and mounted on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, we read to start off the service. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble 
and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is orchestrating this, intentionally bringing it about that people would recognize that He is fulfilling the promise of God in His coming to the city. And they rejoice. They obey, right? That's wonderful, the rejoicing. They, way better than remaining silent. Way better than scoffing or mocking. They rejoice. They're excited. They're glad. God is fulfilling His promises. Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, they say. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There is faith. I think genuine faith in those words. But I'm not sure there's a depth to the understanding of what it would take to bring about the coming kingdom of David. What it would take for God to be just and endowed with salvation in this person of Jesus. What does it mean? It's interesting this is all happening around the Passover feast as the people remember God's deliverance for them from Egypt about 1,500 years before this, these events. God, would del- God had delivered them from Egypt through the plagues. And the final plague was death. That the Egyptians were struck down the firstborn from the highest to the lowest. But those among the people of God who had the blood on their doorposts, the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, were spared. An act of faith. Blood on my doorpost? If you say so, Lord. Pointing forward, right? Pointing forward to the the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world, as John would say about Jesus at the very beginning of His ministry. That Jesus is there coming into, into Jerusalem, and it's like, oh, it's so easy for us, right? So please, don't be like me and judge these guys. Oh, they're so foolish, can't they see it? We're seeing it in the rearview mirror. So obvious. It's one of those things. I feel like when Jesus returns and however that all plays out, it's going to be the same thing. We're going to be like, duh, it was there. Right? Like you look at this and you're like, duh, it's there. Egypt, deliverance, lamb, blood, king, suffering, a king who would live forever. How else would a human descendant have someone sit on the throne forever other than God himself comes down? How else, unless he was resurrected, could he reign and rule forever? That, okay, yeah, that, that was okay, see it. But they don't see it. We wouldn't see it either, but for the eyes of faith. I'm so thankful we sit on this side of the cross. That also makes us that much more responsible, right? To live in light of these truths. We have these promises more certain because we can look back and see all how this played out. How Jesus came and He just lived this perfect life. Fulfilled the promises of God. Riding that donkey and humble. Bringing just and bringing salvation. And that it would require His death. To take away our sin. Because in our sin, we deserve punishment. If he was only holy and right for himself, if he was merely a man, he'd get to go to heaven and be all by himself. 
but not one of us is without sin. Yet God, in His grace and mercy, He comes down taking on human nature, uniting Himself to us, living for us, fulfilling all these promises, suffering, the rejection. Uh, I'd encourage you all to come Friday night for, for our Good Friday service. Take part in the prayer vigil before that. Uh, and just walk through that, thinking about the love of God that would come into this world and go through that for me? For you? Man, if, you, if you're having trouble applying the Word of God, if you're having trouble doing what you know is right, rather than, than try harder, look more deeply at Jesus. Because that's how you're going to be transformed. That's how you're going to change. He's the King. This is why He came. He came to subdue your hearts, to rule over you, yet to conquer your enemies, to conquer the enemy of death, to break its power, and He's done that. Do you believe it? Do you believe that He has risen from the dead? Do you believe that He has broken that power and that there is nothing that can touch you? And even death itself has lost its grip on you. That He will come back one day and He will set it all right. That He will judge with justice. And meanwhile, He offers this grace and mercy to you and to me in the midst of our sin and brokenness that we can be forgiven, that we can have His Spirit to transform us and we can do better tomorrow than we did today. That we can reach out to Him as a community. Together. We can grow as disciples and followers of Jesus. We can, we can do a little better obeying Him. And you know, we need each other for that. Because we all have these blind spots, right? We, we all have these areas where we need to hear things like, not so sure you should be proud of that, right? In a gentle and kind and gracious way. And we can be in a place where we can own things. Our sin, our brokenness. We can seek forgiveness and we can forgive. We can love. We can apologize. We can grow. It's ultimately, that's, that's our destination. And Jesus would have us to follow him. And he's already gone before us. It's a good place to be. It's the best place to be. It's way better than my way. It's way better than your way. It's his way. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We praise you for your grace and mercy. Especially this week, Lord, as we think about you as a king, would you plant it deep in our hearts, this truth, this reality, that what that means is, yes, one day, you will set everything right in all of our circumstances all around us. But right now, in this day, what you're mostly doing more often than not is wanting to transform and subdue our hearts. Oh Lord, give us that grace to bow before you, King Jesus. Give us that grace to believe in your promises that you are who you say you are. That we, we might live for you. That we might seek your face and follow you. That you might be our king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.